2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello. Before we get started, I want to uh, tell you about who is bringing you the show this week. It's Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace is the way to finally build that site you've been meaning to build for years. Uh, It features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com slash longform and use the offer code longform at checkout. You'll get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Hello. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Tell, tell your phone to chill out, Max. Quit buzzing, man. Quit buzzing. Uh, welcome, Aaron. Just the two of us. Evan is still hanging out with uh, young Zaley Ratliff. Just experiencing the world. I got a pee, so let's, uh, let's make this a fast one. Who's <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, on the show this week? My guest this week is Anna Holmes. Uh, Anna is uh, currently, I, I, I think her title is Head of Editorial Development. At Fusion, yeah, I definitely could have botched that. She yeah. works at Fusion. Yeah, she's trying to figure out the future of Fusion. Founder of Jezebel, and she's the founder of Jezebel. Yes, she uh, she started Jezebel for Gawker. She worked there for uh, three years. We talked about Jezebel. We talked about Fusion. We talked about how you make a life uh, writing when you're doing these other jobs and sort of thinking big picture editorially. Uh, she's a fantastic person, and I enjoyed it. We've been um, we've been wanting to have her on for quite a while. Uh, she's a, a heavily requested uh, guest, so this uh, I'm excited about this one. Uh, yeah, she's also uh, the biggest Reba fan that we've had on the show. Hey, you uh, you want to please Max? You uh, compliment his dog. <laughs> uh, um, how about sponsors? Have we any? Uh, Aaron, if you wanted to uh, please your fans, yeah. Give them a little bit more, Aaron. A taste. Yeah, give them, uh, give them Aaron undiluted. Where, how would you do that? I would do that with a uh, newsletter, and if I was trying to start a newsletter, I would start the simplest one I could uh, through Tiny Letter. There's thousands of great Tiny Letters out there. I actually wish that Tiny Letter would start a site of all of the Tiny Letters so I could find even more Tiny Letters to enjoy. Um, They're really easy to get going and set up, and it's a way that whether you're writing every day or once a year, you can keep in touch with your audience. Thanks, Tiny Letter. Uh, Here is Max with Anna Holmes. Hey, Anna Holmes. Hi, Max. Thanks for coming on the podcast. (laughs) Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I have so many things that I want to talk to you about. But I, I think that we should start with the most recent thing of yours that I read. Uh, seems pertinent to the podcast, okay. to this, to the show, which was um, in the New York Times book review. <laughs> it, it was answering your your answer to the question: uh, Is self loathing a requirement for writing? Yeah. The caveat here is that I wrote that about six or eight weeks ago, so I don't even remember what my exact answer <laughs> is. Like by the time it comes out, I, I don't really look at it. Like I'll, I'll, I'll go get the the link from the Times uh-huh. website and like. 
put it on social media and I'll tell my mom, like, look at your paper this weekend. But I won't reread it because it's been, you know, it's like it's over. It's done with. Right. So I believe my answer <laughs> was something along the lines of that. I, I'm not sure that self-loathing is a requirement, but I, I don't think that it, it hurts. <laughs> and that and then I think that, you know, certainly self-awareness um, is 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 important for a writer for anybody. But oftentimes, at least with me, self-awareness can quickly turn into self-loathing. Which is, you know, it's not a complaint. <laughs> I mean, I mean, maybe I, I wish it would happen a little less than it does, but I, but I'd rather have it be that way than, than its opposite. And you know, I, there was some crack I made in the piece. I do remember this. I made a crack about male writers, yes, or, or male yeah. writers being more arrogant. Some of them being more arrogant than they deserved to be, considering their <laughs> talent. So yeah, I think I think it's I think that's kind of a summation of how I answered it. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, that's about that's about it. You took a twist in your answer in the paper that you didn't take just now, which is basically like self-awareness leads to realizing how little of a meritocracy the like writing world oh. particularly in New York is yeah. and that that can lead to self-loathing. Yes. Not simply when you are unsuccessful, mm-hmm. but when you're successful, like mm-hmm. even if you get a break if you're self-aware enough, you realize like ah, this is like mostly luck. Yeah. Well. Okay. I'm I'm only speaking for myself, and I and, and I I don't want to you know I don't want to extrapolate my experience onto any other writer who's successful or not. But I really did feel in in like 2000 is that 2008. So I'd been working on the internet then for about a year. I was not an internet native. I had worked in print. You founded Jezebel, what, like May 2007? Yeah, yeah. And before that, I'd I'd always worked at magazines. And I was, I guess I was somewhat aware in my like 20s and early 30s when I worked at magazines that it wasn't a meritocracy. I mean, it was obvious by looking at the mastheads of magazines and where those people went to school and the fact that people knew each other. I mean, I I knew that there was a lot of nepotism around, but it it was only when I got to the internet, so to speak. And I started really engaging with the writing that I saw on other websites and, and, and trying to, you know, commission people to write for us, that I became aware of how much of what was had been published, at least previously in, in, in my my life as a as a consumer of, of, of media wasn't always as good as what I was seeing on the internet. And and that and that goes for myself. I mean it wasn't that I thought that my shit doesn't stink. It was just that I realized that a lot of our shit stinks <laughs> when you compared it to, to to the stuff that was that was being written online. Is that, do you think that's that's um, about the nature of of writing on the internet in two thousand seven, or do you think that's just like there was so much more of it that the best of all of that other stuff was going to be better than the worst of the stuff that was in print? It felt like there was a lot more relevance to what was being discussed and written about online than there was in in print media, which, I mean, I don't think anyone would argue with that. A lot of magazines just looked increasingly like dinosaurs, even even newspapers at times, compared to what you found on the internet. Newspapers are dinosaurs. Great. (laughs) (laughs) No one's ever said that before. so, so it's 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 hard for me to like articulate articulate exactly why that is. But you know, I also had, you know, my own experience editing people who wrote for the web was that I had a lot of opinions about what they did. I had a lot of opinions about how they should do it. But I was also aware of the fact that I could never do what they did. I never could have done any of the things that the writers that worked for me on that website did. Which is to say, I could not have woken up 
at seven in the morning and had an editor, me, <laughs> throw a couple links at me and then read the stories that were contained in those links and and then, you know, think about them in my head and, and, and try and try and come up with an angle or an opinion that I could then spit out in 45 minutes and do this in, in, in fairly perfect English and then have it published and, and not totally embarrass myself. That doesn't mean that everything that they that we, we published was perfect, but I, I couldn't have done that even once a day. Uh-huh. They were doing it six, seven, eight, nine, ten times a day. So that was also part of like the 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 like self loathing that that crept in. So as, as as much as I loved that job and I felt very proud of what we were doing, I was also well aware of that. I, although I was very good as a boss and I was very good at directing people, like being air traffic controller or uh-huh. having big, big ideas, I couldn't actually do the things that they were doing. Is that because you felt like you were from like a different generation, or because uh, you just don't kind of have the brain for? The, like uh, I, quick I, hit blog I game. seize up too much. Like I get paralyzed as it is writing, and 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 to do that sort of work, you you had to not be paralyzed. I mean, um, Erin Carmon, when she started, uh, I think she started in two thousand nine, um, maybe it was two thousand eight. But she'd come from Women's Wear Daily, where she was a media reporter, and she'd never worked on the internet before. And I remember, you know, the first couple weeks after she started, there was. I know that she felt pressured. I mean, she felt pressured to produce a lot of material. And at one point, I told her, Erin, you you just have to get out of your own way and have confidence in your own ideas and opinions and, and just put stuff, like, like type stuff out, like put something down on paper, so to speak. She will say now, I think she would, that that, that helped her a lot in terms of getting out of her own way and, and, and learning how to write faster. But I was giving her advice that I couldn't even take myself. <laughs> Like there's no way I could have done that, just no way. But but I, you know it's funny because like if you look at her at, at what she does now, I mean she's on TV a lot. When she's writing things for MSNBC, when she was writing for Salon before she went to MSNBC, she would turn around things very 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 quickly because she it was a skill she developed. I mean maybe some people have it innately. I don't think that she had it innately, but she did take my words to heart and get out, get out of her own way. Right. But I couldn't I couldn't do that myself. So part of the self-loathing thing was like, I can't do it, what the, my writers are doing. Part of it was becoming more and more cognizant of the fact that certain positions that people had in New York media were not always, you know, they didn't quote unquote deserve them. And that's a horrible thing to say. And it's also, you know what, that's the case in any industry. It's not specific to New York media. But <laughs> I think that for a long time in my 20s, my early 30s, I really was under the impression that someone, for example, who went to Yale or Princeton was better than I was or that you know if they'd been published in this place and I hadn't that they were better than I was I mean uh-huh. I really I really like bought into that when I started to not buy into that anymore I think that was very freeing but it was also it led to a certain amount of self-loathing because some of the success that I did I'd enjoyed I wondered how much of that was just pure luck you know how much of it was the fact that I went to college in New York, and then I had internships in New York, and then I, you know, got a job from one of those internships, and then I, you know, like like, like things uh-huh. that didn't make me any better than anybody else, but I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, you know. And I still feel that way at times. I mean, there there are times when I try to be proud of things that I've accomplished, and then there are times when I'm like, ah, I don't know, whatever. Like when, when I'll downplay that sort of stuff, yeah. Either out loud to other people or just in my own head. And it's not, you know, it's not something I talk to other, other writers about very often. That's the weird thing. I don't talk to other writers about like their issues with self-loathing. <laughs> I mean, what do you think about self-loathing? Do you have self-loathing? Oh, tremendous! Yes, massive, <laughs> massive self-loathing. Any listener to this podcast knows that that that's the case. But I thought that question was like kind of like trolly self-help ultimately, because like the question or the answer. The que- the mm-hmm, question because mm-hmm. I think like anyone would want to the answer to be yes. 
right? Yeah. Any yeah. self-loathing writer wants right, to answer right, that question and be like, yes, you actually do. Yeah. So all of this like self-inflicted pain, right. uh, like uh, the the uh, self-loathing there, yeah. uh, it's a requirement. There's but no I don't know that it. self-loathing makes you a better writer. I think self-awareness does. I don't know that self-loathing does. No, I, I agree. Know? I'm just yeah. saying like it, whoever, whichever editor of yours came up with that question, yeah. it was like, that's a good internet <laughs> question. Uh, I'm interested in those early days... 2007, 2008 of Jezebel. You are? Okay. <laughs> no, no. You seem no, interested no, no. in them. No, no. I, I, I have lots to say about them, but I just, you know, sometimes I worry that, that I talk about them too much. So Don't be self-loathing about my I curiosity. Okay. It's genuine. Okay. Uh, but we can, like, avoid some third rails if there's shit you no, feel like you've talked about over and over again. No, there's no, there's no third rails. In hindsight, right? Mm-hmm. It now is actually, like, kind of a long time ago. I know. It was in, eight, eight years ago. In that, it's like kind of wild. It was a long time ago. Yeah. It's uh, it's like fully history at this point. Absolutely. I went back and read your first post, the like manifesto. Oh, that Mo uh, wrote? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Mo, yeah, Mo Tassik, the, yeah. The, mm-hmm. Like the five yeah. lies of women's magazines. Yeah. And it's so interesting. The site was completely set up in opposition to women's magazines. Yep. And I'm interested in what you think the impact has been on women's magazines. Okay. Um, this is a difficult question to answer, and I will try to do my best. Uh, it, it absolutely was set up in opposition to women's magazines, in part because I had worked at women's magazines and was very uh, upset about them <laughs> and, and self-loathing for having had worked at them, but also because I felt that they were irrelevant to the lives of, of women, you know, contemporary women. And it was it was also like a good conceit to have. I mean, it had it had a we had someone or something to fight against. Because that original manifesto was directed at women's magazines, we had to keep up our battle against them. Um, I, I, it, it wasn't something that I was going to like, you know, go like we weren't going to go after them for the first month and then forget about it. So it was it was a constant source of of, of irritation. Women's magazines were, but it was also they also provided a, a constant source of content because right. there were at least seven or seven to nine large women's magazines, American women's magazines that came out each month that we could go through. And we did. We went through them all and picked out stuff and made fun of it or trashed it or, you know, we were not very nice about it. I don't feel guilty about that, but we were relentless. It was relentless. There was at least one or two things a day on that site about women's magazines. So at first, I wasn't aware really whether we were having an effect or whether everyone was anyone was listening. But, you know, a couple of years in, what I started to see was this. I started to see that the women's magazines that we made fun of or critiqued or trashed or all of the above were starting to tweak their stuff a little bit. Usually it was on their it was on their websites and their websites were not that robust back then. Like no one really read Glamour's website right. or Cosmo's website. And and if they did, they were usually just putting content from the magazine on the on the website. They, they it didn't feel like there was a there was an independent operation at some of these magazines to to really build their websites. Um, but I, we started to see content on the websites that felt a little I don't want to say derivative, but echoed some of the stuff that we were doing, uh, whether it was a focus on politics or um, the politics of pop culture or they would drop excuse me they would drop the f-bomb as in feminism <laughs> um, and then they, they, you know they never had before and then we started to see things in the print issues that suggested to me that they were course correcting 
whether it was a feature, you know, with a plus size model or they were touting the fact that they had a fashion editorial that had lots of women of color or a couple magazines within within two years of the site's launching had 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 done non photoshopped covers or, or or fashion editorials inside. But, but see, there was no proof that this was actually happening. I mean, like this was happening, but there was no proof that it was connected. Because of you guys, yeah. And I was also too up my own ass. I mean, I was trying to run the site, you know. So I felt like there was a connection, but I couldn't really marinate in it or or, or investigate it that 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 closely right. because I was trying to run the site, and it really it really ran my life. So it was only after I left in like 2010 that I started to realize that we had had an effect on them. Uh, and when I say we, I don't just mean Jezebel and the women who worked at it. I mean some of the sites that cropped up after we yeah. launched. Quick word from our sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace is the best way to build a website. Uh, you probably have an idea for a website right now. It is a good idea. It's a better idea than you think. If you have some doubt, if you're not sure, I'm telling you to go for it. That idea is good. Uh, maybe it's your personal website. Maybe it's a portfolio for your work. Maybe it's uh, a business you wanted to start. Maybe you own a business already and you just haven't gotten around to building a website. Either way, no matter what it is, go ahead build that website, and you should do it with Squarespace. Squarespace is super, super easy. They've got these beautiful templates. You don't need to know a lick of code. Everything is just plug and play. It just works, and it works anywhere, any device, your phone, your tablet, your desktop. Your site's going to look great no matter what. Plus, if you go to squarespace.com slash longform, that's squarespace.com slash longform. If you use the code longform at checkout, you'll get 10% off when you pay. Plus, you get a free domain. But here's the thing. You don't even need all that. Just go to squarespace.com and try it out for free. Start building your website. See how easy it is to use. You will not find a better, more simple, more elegant way to build that website, to finally build that website that you've been meaning to build. I promise you, you will feel better when it's done. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. I'm interested in how you think about competition. Like when Jezebel came out, it was very unique, singular operation, mm-hmm. right? It was like yeah. a new idea and a new voice. Mm-hmm. Within a couple of years, there were several sites oh, yeah. in that spirit. Yeah, and I was really pissed about it. Yeah, how, can <laughs> I, like, how did you deal with that? Like, I feel like um, the internet has grown in these eight years mm-hmm. into like a pretty like back slappy place like it's a very nice place mm-hmm. i think oh wait uh, you do are you ever on twitter <laughs> i think <laughs> people are nice there <laughs> i think people are well i think people in this world are yeah. kind of nice to okay. each other mm-hmm. like people who would appear to be in competition gotcha. are pretty friendly yeah and i wonder is that real or do hmm. they kind of like fucking hate each other and i'm interested in for you how that was say pre-twitter or not whatever mm-hmm. having all these sites pop up that were yeah. very clearly trying to recreate some of what you had built. Well, nowadays, I feel that people are are friendly with one another because I think there's an acknowledgement that there is room for lots of different people and lots of different sites, even if they kind of, you know, are in the same genre, so to speak. And I can only speak for myself, as I keep saying, but when I think the first... The first site that cropped up that seemed like it was a reaction to or a response to Jezebel or, 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 or an attempt to mimic it somehow 
was it was either something called the Frisky or it was Slate's Double X yeah. site. I don't remember which came first, but I know that my reaction to Slate's Double X site was extremely internally violent, which is to say, first of all, they hired away one of my staffers, so I got pissed off about that. And actually, the first the first day they launched, they had a they had a, a post taking trying to take us down uh-huh. by a woman who uh, right like, that's hadn't saying. read the site. Well, but yeah. you also were like in this really interesting position, right? Because now all of a sudden you're in between women's magazines mm-hmm. and these other sites like yeah. you opened up and you're like fuck women's magazines mm-hmm. double x comes out and they're like fuck, fuck jezebel. jezebel yeah but i mean but like which they had to kind of do but the thing is within the first couple of days of that site being live i realized that i didn't have much to be afraid of only because at that time it felt like slate was a website and and double x included in this was very much a website for like northeastern highly educated white people who were smug about themselves. And as much as we might be surrounded by that here in New York or New York media, there aren't that many people like that in the United States. I think that the conversations that they have are less interesting than the people who are engaged in them believe they are. And, you know, like Slate used to have this, um, and maybe they still do, but they used to have this conceit where they, where they would write each other's like letters or, uh-huh. or have yeah. like you know p- stories in which they'd be talking to one another. Yeah, like, that was like how they did TV yeah. recaps. For yeah, a while. like I don't know Troy, like, <laughs> like that sort of thing. Everyone's named Troy. Well, tr- actually, there is a Troy there, and he's, he's my friend, and he did not participate in this. So, I, so I'm using him as an example, but he does not participate in the like back and forth like that. But that whole kind of conceit was was also, or, or that tone was very much part of double X. And because of that, and because I, I, I got that sense you know, pretty quickly, um, I did not be, become concerned that they were going to overshadow us because I just felt the audience for that was minuscule uh-huh. compared to the audience that we were going for, which I felt was, I don't know, more populist, if that's a, if that's a good word. You know, when I say I was kind of like, when I felt like violent about it, I mean, that's, that's, that's maybe a hyperbole. I just felt an extreme amount of concern, but then I also felt an extreme amount of Determination that I would not ever let them be "quote unquote" better than us. We were; they were never going to approach us in traffic. They were never going to approach us in in influence. Like I was going to make damn sure this was never going to happen. And how I was going to do that was I was just going to like work harder. I was going to like show them up as much as I could at every turn. We were going to be faster, better, more colorful, funnier, you know, more relevant, more inclusive, you know, yada yada yada. And I think that we were. I'm not talking about the double X that exists now. Yeah. Um, because the, here's the interesting thing. You know, after I left Jezebel, the internet changed somewhat, which is to say that people stopped going to URLs, to websites. They started reading stuff through their social media feeds. And that's the way that I read it as well. So it although I used to read Jezebel and Double X and other sites by going to their home pages and, and getting a sense of like what they were all about and 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 and, and you know, now I only click on the stuff that like really captures my eye. Was it is it coming through my Twitter? Right, feed. it's almost like the fight doesn't matter as much because very few people are looking at them as like cohesive entities right, anyway. Exactly. I mean, that's been a way that I, that's changed. You know, my my reading habits have changed that way, but it's also changed maybe how I regard certain media outlets because I don't I, I don't see them as a cohesive whole, and so I don't expect certain things from them. But 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 going back to the yes, but going back to like the kind of copycat sites, and I I'm, he- I'm hesitant to use the word copycat because it sounds pejorative. Although I felt very much like they were being copycats back then. They had their own spin on things. And I think that if I felt now that I had lost to them, that we had uh, somehow lost this battle, yeah. whatever that battle is, then I might be saying, I might be speaking, you know, very differently about it. But 
I felt like we came out on top of that because the the, the sites that, ex- that 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 cropped up after our launch that were obviously inspired by us in some way, shape, or form were not as good as we were. They just weren't. They just weren't. And I mean, I you know, here's you know, ten minutes ago, I'm talking about self loathing. I will totally toot our own horn <laughs> with regards to the great site that we put out back then. We were we did a great job. Do you feel competitive with writers? With writers, uh, do I? As as a writer, do no, you f- no, no, no. Sometimes I feel like I should be competitive, feel competitive with, with with writers. I mean, certainly there are people who are like, oh, I wish I could have written that, or I wish I had, I wish I was as good a writer as so and so, or I wish I had that assignment. But it'd be one thing if I felt like I was trying and trying and trying and trying and having doors slammed in my face all the time. Then I might feel jealous about jealous towards or competitive with writers, but. Number one, sometimes I feel like I don't try as hard as I should, and that's related to point two, which is that I really hate writing. I really don't like it. Like I really think that that I'm a much better editor, that I'm much better at at big ideas and and seeing them through than I am in putting putting words on paper. Do you not uh, write for yourself very often? Like whether I yeah. pitch things? Yeah. Um. Yeah, I have, but I have to really, really, really be into it. I get to really, really believe in the idea or want to, or, or have an idea that I want to explore. I mean, I'm trying to think of the last thing that I pitched that I wrote. I think the last thing that I may have pitched that I wrote was last year. <laughs> <laughs> and it was for the New Yorker's website. And it was about something I'd been thinking about for maybe a decade and a half, which was, I felt that there were very strong parallels between the, the protagonists of Harriet the Spy and To Kill a Mockingbird. And no one had ever written about this, and I had been looking, because I thought it, it felt very obvious to me that there were mm-hmm. parallels between those two characters, b- between Scout Finch and Harriet. And no one had written about it, and I mentioned it to uh, Sasha Weiss, who was then an editor on the website, and she said, go for it. And so I was, you know, that that was a joy to do, because it had been bubbling up or, or marinating inside of me for right. a long time. But that's the last piece I pitched. <laughs> <laughs> Part of that is because I have a another. I have a job. Like I have to. I have a job I have to do. And I. I so when I write, you know, if if I were a full time writer, if that's how I made my living, maybe I would feel more comfortable with the idea of writing because I'd be doing it more often. But uh-huh. because it's kind of infrequent, then I I get really worked up about it. You know, like literally, I'm the worst. I'm the worst at procrastinating. I will have a deadline. I'll know about it. I'll know about it for months in advance, and I won't do anything about it until the week before the thing is due. When you're an editor, when you're like running the ship. Do you have this same oh, when, sort of like anxiety around no, things? No, well, when I ran Jezebel, I was ab- I was totally organized. I was a, I was a machine. I was a total total and complete monster machine, <laughs> and I would never want to do, like do that again because it it burnt me out. The reason that I was a machine when I ran Jezebel was because I felt that I had to be in order to in order for the site to function. I don't have that sort of job now, so I can be a little messier, so to speak. And I'm also not overseeing seven to eight different people who all have questions for me, you know, at any given time uh-huh. of the day where I have to, you know, really be present for them. I was interesting because it felt like you were sort of setting up, there was like a dynamic one that, that Anna the writer is slightly different than like Anna the manager. I think I'm, I'm, maybe, I mean, I think I'm more, I may be more in control or I feel more in control when I'm a manager slash editor. The fact is like I have a lot of ideas that I really like, but I also, I also know that I'm not the best person to execute them. I mean, oftentimes there's no there's no way I should be the one like the person to write about something, but I might have a good idea, and so and I really actually enjoy that more than writing itself. I enjoy having a good idea and 
and finding the right person to pair it with and seeing it come to fruition. That feels very connected to the story you're telling about Arin. Not feeling like you're the right person to to write the piece Mm -hmm. is very connected to uh, not being able to take your own advice about being fearless. That's true. Uh, Here's one question I have. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your job? <laughs> my job right now, my title is I'm the editorial director of Fusion, but that's that's a new title. Before that, I was the um, editor, digital ed- or editor of Digital Voices, which which didn't really mean anything. I don't understand either of those titles. I know, but I I have a, a second question, which yeah. maybe you should answer first, okay. which will help me understand. Okay. What your job is, yeah. which is um, what is fusion? What is fusion? Everyone loves this question. <laughs> what is fusion? Fusion is a media company that is owned by two other media companies, both very large. One of them being Disney, and one of them being Univision. You might have heard of them. Um, might have heard of them. It's a digital first media company that has a, a television, like a cable TV arm. There's a cable TV channel yeah. that I don't get because it's on Time Warner Cable right now, and has a you know a purely digital presence, a website, um, an assorted platforms that it, it, it uses, Snapchat, et cetera. And I work on that side of the equation. So I don't work on the, the TV side, which they call they, they just they call it linear. This was something I didn't know before because I'd never worked in a TV company. So linear is the TV and digital is digital. Uh, so <laughs> That's a weird word. <laughs> linear? I, yeah, I don't, I don't really quite understand where work. I don't either. I don't get it either. Um, Do you get like a glossary of like corporate uh, bullshit when you but, take a job like yeah, that? right. <laughs> speaking, of, well, speaking of corporate bullshit, actually, no, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not telling that story. Okay. No! <laughs> You can't do um, that. <laughs> um, so we, so maybe I'll tell you when we're not being recorded. But um, I'll put it this way: when I got hired, I what told is them, the corporate bullshit story? Come on. Oh, it was just, okay. Well, we used to be in a building that that was owned by Disney, in like near Lincoln Center, and we wanted to paint some of the walls in in our office. Some we wanted to paint some of them with um, whatever the paint is that you can write on. You know, like uh, like whiteboard paint. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And then there was one wall we wanted to paint red. And we had to like tell like facilities people that we wanted to do this. And then I was informed that there was like a booklet. There was a booklet of approved Disney paint colors, <laughs> so that the red that we picked had to be from this non, booklet. Non-linear. <laughs> and I was just so I was so shocked that there was such a thing as approved Disney paint colors. <laughs> um, and we didn't end up painting the wall red. Because I just, well, partly I didn't want to deal with, you know, the booklet. But also we were going to be moving out of that office anyway. I think that's what's called a metaphor. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. (laughs) No, I don't want to get in trouble for, like, telling that story. But, you know, I mean, I guess it isn't that surprising that a large company as large as Disney would have certain standards. It isn't. Uh, From all accounts, you guys have, like, a pretty fantastic budget. Yes. And it is not super clear yet what you're trying to build. To, to to the outside. Yeah, I'll just, and, and, well, I'll just speak for myself. I also think it's probably not super clear what we're trying to build from the inside. I think I think we're still figuring out what we're trying to build. I think I think that you know we we look at the digital side of the operation as being a um, a place to experiment, not just with things that might end up on the linear side, like on TV, but the things. I can't believe I just used the word linear. <laughs> <laughs> but but also You're for the parent the machine, companies, Holmes. I know I know I'm totally buying into it, hook, line, and sinker. Um, but but also but also for the parent companies and how and how they produce and distribute content digitally for you know for other brands within within um, ABC right. slash Disney kinda, and Univision. You're kind of like an R and D lab. Well. In some cases, in some ways, I mean, I don't think of us as being that way because we do have to build a brand. We have to, you know, get traffic and 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 you know, create engaging content. It's not just like 
we can fuck around, you know, in 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 our you know pretend laboratory and you know do bong hits um, <laughs> all day. Like we 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 have we have goals we want to meet, but. Another way to describe fusion, it really is geared towards a young adult audience. Um, I don't want to use the word. Don't that, don't use it. Don't even use it. Um, but you know which word I'm talking I about. Do. My feeling about quote young adults <laughs> is is this. I don't actually think that there's like a secret sauce for them, and I know I, I know a fair number of them. I think that they like the same sort of things that I like. Uh, they might interact with content in a different way than I'm used to because they are more internet native. They may be on platforms that I don't use. Like I don't use Snapchat and I really don't use Facebook either. But I use Twitter and Instagram. I don't feel like they're like a kind of foreign exotic tribe that we have to study carefully. Yeah. If we could just sequester a few of them uh, in a laboratory, we could really learn something. We could really figure it out. (laughs) I I don't think they're that complex. Um, You know, I have complaints about that generation at times. Um, (laughs) but, But in terms of what sort of what sort of stories that they want to want to you know interact with or encounter? I don't think it's that difficult, and I, I and I and I do believe, and I believe this about Jezebel. I really did believe with Jezebel that if we built it, they would come. That if we that if we were yeah. if we were inspired and excited by the things that we were doing, and if we were writing about and featuring people, topics, ideas, opinions that, that that excited us, that that would be somewhat contagious if there had to be other people like us. And there were. And I do believe that, you know, in, in case of young people. I, I don't know if your listeners are going to know which word I'm avoiding using, but... Um, they do. The word, I mean, okay. they know that the word is millennial. Okay. Okay. Here, here's the, it's just marketing speak, you know, I, and, I, and that's why I really... And it's also kind of... Well, you want, it, you want both linear and digital millennials. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. I'm going to slap you. <laughs> <laughs> here's my... Here's my, But uh, I'm glad you brought up Jezebel, right? Because what you're describing with Fusion sounds to me hard. Yeah. With Jezebel, in hindsight, right... Same way with like Deadspin. Mm-hmm. There was just this huge gaping hole. That's, yes, there was. In the coverage, yes, right? Yes, there was. And the people you were writing for were you, mm-hmm. right? Like Will Leach was just writing the exactly. site that Will Leach wanted. You exactly. were just writing the site that you wanted. Exactly. It is not clear to me that anyone knows what these young people want. Yeah. I, well, you know what? I, I I don't know that we anyone knows what they want, but I do think that you can look at them and and... <laughs> glean certain things. For example, they're much more diverse ethnically um, and in many other ways than my generation is. So if you're going to do content for them, then you have to like you have to you know acknowledge that. I mean that that was actually one of my complaints when I started Jezebel about women's media is that it was very much geared towards young white women. But when I walked outside, I saw women of all colors who were just as interested in talking about what happened on The Real Housewives the night before or Hillary Clinton's first presidential campaign. Yeah. I just talked to Rembert yeah. a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. and he was making that same exact point which is like people are people too. You can have varied interests. Like you can be interested in some light like or whatever reality TV or whatever the example mm-hmm. is going to be yeah. and in presidential politics yeah. you do not have to be no. just interested in one thing. And, and, and I felt I felt that you know especially for women at least back then that, that they were very much pigeonholed into into certain roles that you know prescribed that they be or that they were interested in very few things namely you know whether they had a boyfriend how to please their boyfriend were they skinny enough for their boyfriend i mean it was it was all about kind of sex and 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 
I mean, I realize everything's about sex, but it was <laughs> it was too much about sex to to the, to the exclusion of of the other interests that women had. So, but getting, going back to the 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 young people, yeah. the snake people. I don't think they're they're probably that difficult to crack, but the, but but the the difference is well, first of all, I don't run Fusion, I ran Jezebel. If you want to make a comparison between the two, which I which, which I don't think would be instructive, but the one compare, or if I were going to, what I would say would be this: Fusion is an enormous company that has a lot of money and a lot of people. There are a lot of cooks in the kitchen. With Jezebel, it was me and it was two other women, and then two other women got hired, and then two other women got hired. But because it was so small, we could be very focused. So I think it's maybe harder to define something when you have a staff of many hundreds than when you have seven. <laughs> it's a different era. It's in terms of like the amount of resources we have. It's great. We have I have many more resources at my disposal than I did at Gawker Media. You know, when you take away resources, it might force you to focus in a, in a way that you don't have to when you have your know, access to lots of stuff. So I mean, I'm just kind of talking out of my ass here, but I do feel like. Um, it's not that instructive to compare them, but I do think that size is probably an issue, and we're under more pressure than I was. I, f- I certainly felt like I was under a lot of pressure at Gawker Media, or, or at least with Jezebel, for it to make it succeed. I mean, the idea that it would fail, that my name was going to be at the top of it, filled me with a lot of fear. How's it going? How's it going? It's good. We have a new we have a new editor. So we had um, we had Jane Spencer, who was our editor in chief, and then she got promoted up to the C suite, if that's the right <laughs> word. And Alexis Madrigal, who was the head of the, our Real Future vertical, is now the editor in chief. And he is great and has a lot of energy. And I don't know how he has so much energy. <laughs> Might be that he's younger than me. He's, he's not ins- a young person, though. I, actually, I think that he is. I he's think technically he's, I a think young he's, person? I think he's technically a young person. I think he's like 32. I think okay. that's technically a young person. I think everyone feels really energized by his energy. I was literally just in Miami yesterday. This, the company is based in Miami. And I'm not a big fan of Miami, to be honest. But I had to go down there for a, a kind of like company-wide meeting. So I literally got up at 5 in the morning, got on a plane, left at 7, arrived in Miami at 10.30, Went to the office, was there till four, got driven back to the airport, got on a plane and came home. Um, if it was winter, I may have stayed a day or two, <laughs> yeah. but it's really stinking hot down there. Um, but, you know, I, I just felt like the energy even yesterday during that company meeting was was great. I wish that we were all in New York. Like, I wish they weren't based in Miami. I wish that we were all in the same place. Mm-hmm. Alexis is in Oakland, right? And, yeah, and Alexis is, Alexis is on the West Coast. He does travel a lot, though. I mean, he he comes out to New York quite a bit. So he doesn't feel that far away, and uh-huh. he's you know very very involved. So the energy is, is uh, optimistic. Yes, absolutely. From the outside, it, it, uh, here's what you see. Mm-hmm. If you're paying some attention to this, which I do, yeah, no one knows exactly how much, but it seems like everyone's making like a quite a, quite a good amount of money. That that's one narrative about the place. Okay, I know. And people are not super clear about the long term vision of it. People don't really yeah. know what it is, right? People yeah. keep asking you, like, what is Fusion? Mm-hmm. What's it like to kind of be this thing that gets joked about and people don't really know what yeah. it is? And, like, you and Alexis are, like, uh, widely beloved people. Uh, and it seems like the place you're working for gets kind of, like, knocked around a lot. And yeah. I just wonder what it's like. I don't pay that much attention to that stuff, only because I I know that if I did, it would probably get me down. So I purposely avoid it. So the ways in which Fusion gets knocked around, I mean, I'm somewhat aware of it, but 
not as aware of it as I could be. Like I'm just not a masochist. I don't even have a Google alert on my own name. Like I refuse to do that. It's I just, very I, I just, I That's don't want to know. I don't want to know. I, I think I've gone through a kind of evolution with regards to how I feel about um, some of the jokes being made about it. I started about a year ago. So at the beginning, I didn't really care because it's like it was new. I mean, it, it, it had been around for a year, but it, it's a new iteration. It, it was, it was, it was staffing up, and I'm like, what? You know, we're trying to build something. We'll see. I think by like six months after that, when there were jokes being made, that I started to feel bummed about it when I did hear about them. And I couldn't always answer the question, what is fusion, with a lot of specificity because I wasn't sure that I knew. And I wasn't sure that I think we were trying to figure that out. Now I don't feel as bummed when that sort of stuff gets thrown around, meaning jokes or, or criticisms, only because. I do. I have seen a, a real evolution and a change in what it was from eight months ago to what it is now, uh, and I felt a big shift in the energy level of the people who were there. They have their. I mean, they always had their eyes on the prize, but they, but it feels like everyone understands what we are working towards. And you know, if someone were to ask me, and you know, this is not the official line, so this is just me talking, okay? <laughs> Alexis might not agree with us. Um, but if someone said, what do you think fusion should be? What I would say is, is that I think that fusion should be something akin to vice, meaning with that scope and reach, but not for white hipster dudes. I mean, that I mean that actually reflects the United States and the people within it. And that, yes, that, that is me taking a knock at vice. And I realize that vice is not the same now as it was when it was first founded but there that is still very much part of its dna hipster contrarian white dudes and you know i mean that very famous scene in in page one where david carr goes after <laughs> shane smith uh you know like his his contempt you know I, I i i do share it to a certain degree i think that there's space for a company of that size and reach that's going after a similar audience in terms of the age range, but that is actually feels much more relevant to the lives of that that people actually live. Do you think you guys are going to pull it off? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's okay to not know. <laughs> I don't want to say yes, and I don't want to say no. I feel more optimistic about that now than I than I may have like eight months ago. There are a lot of moving parts. I mean, like, as I said, there's a whole TV side, yeah. the linear side. We interact with them, but you know, they have their own thing. They're doing their own thing. So it, 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 it requires a lot of these different departments succeeding together and, and, and learning from one another. So you know, I hope that doesn't sound pessimistic when I said I, I didn't know. But you know, I, I feel like we have the backing and that we have the people and are having starting to get even more people coming in who can make that happen. So I feel much more optimistic about it. Are you getting to do that kind of work you were doing in the early days of, of Jezebel? Are you getting to do that kind of work where you're like uh, helping writers get over their fear? No, because I, cause <laughs> when I got hired, I told, I told um, the man who hired me, I told him I didn't want to edit. I told him I didn't want to edit writers. How come? Because I didn't, I did not want to be wedded to the news cycle. I was very tired of that, and and as much of an adrenaline rush as it can be to like pay attention to what people are saying, what's happening, and have someone respond to it, 
it, that is so much more ubiquitous now than it was when I ran Jezebel. I mean, everyone has a fucking take. I'm yeah. so sick of it. I'm so sick of everyone's opinions. I don't want to be in the position of having to like edit people's opinions that much. I also don't want to be in the position of having to respond to the news cycle. Yeah. I find it utterly exhausting. And that's part of what burned me out at my last job. So when I took this job, it was with the understanding that we would that I would be creating content, for lack of a better word, that had relevance to the world today, but that was not that was not reactive. That would take a while. Whether that was an interactive or a short video or a little mini doc or a long form narrative piece of graphic journalism, these were not going to be. You know, give me a hot take in, about, about something in two hours. I like that Stevie Wonder backup singer one. I love her. She's well, okay. The whole the whole re- here here's the whole reason. The whole reason that thing came about is because and it's a series. It's going to be a series about people young people, quotes, <laughs> and their jobs. It happens that one of the young women in our office, Akila Hughes, who's a very funny writer, just dropped one day out of nowhere that her friend was a backup singer for Stevie Wonder. And I'm like, what? Do you, what? <laughs> because like, I'm obsessed with him. Um, and I'm like, what are you talking about? You know someone who does that as a job? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, can I have her email yes, address? How can I become that person? <laughs> well, yeah. And I don't, I don't really want that job because I don't have a good voice. But... Um, I just thought, like, what a fascinating gig. And also, the the woman that we profiled, Jasmine, hits the sweet spot of, of like, who we're going after. She's 27. She's probably 28 now. She's a Miami native. She's Puerto Rican. She's lived in New York and in Miami and L.A. She You couldn't cast her better. And that is part of how you build the thing that you're trying to build, right, is looking for the people who are not just examples of who you're trying to reach, but are like uh, in the embodiment of who you're trying to reach. Yeah. Right? Like putting putting those people forward sure. is a way of sort of defining yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And also and also just going after stories or, or people or the stories of people that excite you, either because of who they are, what they do, or some combination of the above. And that doesn't mean they have to be famous. You right. know, I'm. That's, I mean, we don't need to get back down this Jezebel line, but that's really what I was asking, which mm. is like, independent of your resources, if the stated goal is create a media company designed to reach people who are not you, that's different than create something that is designed to reach people who are you. Mm. If you're going to follow what you're curious about, there's a leap there if it's meant to uh, appeal to young people. Yeah, but I think but I think that oftentimes it will because I I would like to think that I have a curiosity that is that is similar to that of someone a little bit younger than me. I mean, I do feel myself like getting calcified as, as I age <laughs> or like, you know, oh, I was kids and their their music and you know, you know, being curmudgeonly, but but I think that connects to what you're saying earlier, which is like they're still still fucking people. Yeah. Like uh, uh what is interesting is interesting. Yeah. What's it like when you like click a Jezebel link and you land there? Is it like running into like an ex on the street? No, 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 no. I feel very much apart from it. When I first left, I couldn't look at the site for about a year, meaning I purposely didn't look at the site because I knew that I was going to get irritated. I mean, I knew that I was going to see stuff on that site that I didn't agree with, or I, I, whether it was that headline was written wrong, in my opinion, or why they used that picture, or why they're doing that post at all. I mean, that I was going to have opinions. I was a big micromanager, and I had a lot of opinions when I ran that site, and I knew that if that when I left, that I was going to be disappointed in certain things. I mean, I would go on vacation very rarely and come back 
and see what they'd done in my absence. And for the most part, the site was fine, right? But I, but, but like, you know, I wouldn't focus on that. I'd focus on like that dumb post they right, put up right, last right. week. You know, I, I, and, my, and I yeah. wouldn't tell them this. I wouldn't yell at them about it. I really had to, for my own mental health, and f- also to give them some freedom from me getting in their faces, not look at the site. And I'm not saying I always did that successfully. I do think that they, the staffers who remained after I left, and then Jessica Cohen who started who was the editor-in-chief after I left I'm sure they felt my presence to some degree and I'm sure part of what they felt was probably because I was pushing it onto them somehow I mean because you know I still talked to them right I just felt like it would be destructive if I were to read the site and, and by the time that I felt ready to read it so to speak I wasn't reading the internet the same way right it, I mean like literally, the internet had changed while it, you it, took your sabbatical yeah, I, mean, I mean like like I, I I don't know when I signed up for a Twitter account for example it may have been 2008 but I didn't use Twitter until I quit Jezebel because I had an RSS feed. <laughs> so that, that, that was my thing I stared at all day. And so when I started using Twitter, once I quit Jezebel, it also felt like that was that was the same time that Twitter started getting bigger yeah. among media people. And like that's how I started reading content was was on my Twitter feed. So And I stopped going to, to, to homepages. I mean, I'll... I'll go to the Times homepage quite a lot. Yeah, you know that's, um, it. That, that's it for me too. I'm interested in your uh, relationship with Twitter, though. Oh God, <laughs> go ahead. You can ask. I I don't even have a specific question. Oh, you, you tweet all the time. I, I, You're good at it. No, 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 no. I don't tweet all the time. I used to tweet all the time. If you could see like a chart of like the volume, it it would have it it went down quite a bit because it's exhausting. Here, here's here's a funny story. So when I quit Jezebel, I needed to like direct my OCD-ness at something else because before I had had the site and my RSS feed and I was always you know bragging that I had the best RSS feed in the city that we that I saw stuff first and that we put up stuff first for other sites and I think we did like it was it was a monster I had curated it for lack of a better word very carefully but it was a monster so but because I had left the site and I wasn't looking at RSS feeds anymore uh, I had to direct my um attention to something else, and that something else was Twitter. So when I first started using Twitter, this is not when I first signed up, it's when yeah, I first started yeah, using yeah. it in like July of 2010. I think I felt somewhat aimless because I didn't take another job. So what I would do is I would look at Twitter at the same desk in my second bedroom at my house where I had worked on Jezebel, and then like let's say I'd go out to lunch, which is something I didn't used to do when I ran Jezebel. I would never leave the house. When I came back, I would, and I followed a lot of people back then, I still do. I would go back to the point in the Twitter stream to where I had last read a tweet and then catch up with all the things that had happened in this, let's say, two hours. That was a lot to do. And and at the time... It's like a part-time job. Right. At the time, there's also more tweets coming in. So when I finally get caught up to, like, you know, let's let's say, like, I I, I start reading at 12.30, like, whatever was being posted at 12.30 p.m., and I get back to the house at 2.30 p.m., and I finally get caught up to to 2.30 p.m., it's now 3.15, and I have 45 more minutes to get caught. It was crazy. It was crazy. And then finally I realized something. I was like, you know what? If something that important happens, it's going to still be talked about hours later. But I think that I, what I was afraid, I don't think I was afraid of missing like a big news story. I think I was afraid of like the me- inside media commentary jokes kind of stuff. Yeah. Which I was giving, which I was actually giving the same weight to breaking news. You know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I, yeah, well, I, I, I mean, that's the part of the thing. But it's that like was it's- crazy. So finally, <laughs> so finally I was like, this is fucking crazy and I'm going to stop doing this. And so I sort of still was on Twitter and used it, but I didn't, I didn't, 
I didn't have FOMO, as they call it now. I didn't have a fear of missing out. Yeah. Let me ask you another question. Uh, a couple of months ago, I had Emma Carmichael yeah. on, mm-hmm. current editor of Jezebel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emma Carmichael, we are uh, all thinking of you. Yeah. Uh, and she said a bunch of really interesting stuff about the current state of, for lack of a better word, like lady blogging. Mm-hmm. And also about, uh, <laughs> and also about Twitter. Okay. And what she was saying, I guess I'm just wondering. I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Like, what she was saying was basically, there are so there are a lot of rules about what you can and can't say, mm-hmm. and that uh, there are pretty defined zones uh, in which you can operate, and it's hard, almost impossible, to break out of those because you will so quickly get like descended upon mm-hmm. yeah. if you take those kinds of risks. Yeah. Uh, her conclusion was like, never tweet. Yeah. But as the kind of like person who started this I'm interested in whether A that sounds right to you and B what you think of that dynamic it's horrible I mean and the thing is it wasn't as pronounced when when I was around well because you were writing the rules no we weren't no 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 No, I don't think so Um, no we were oftentimes I mean there there are things that went up on that site that if they went up today it it would be you know be World War 3 at least in some circles Actually, where some of the rules were, were being written were in the reactions to things that we wrote, whether it was in the comments, which was much more much more the case back then. I mean, we had a really engaged commenter culture on that site. And, 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 and a lot of you know reactions to the pieces were not coming from things like Twitter or Facebook um, as much back then. There was a tendency among our readership to bring the quote-unquote hammer down if they thought that something had been said that they didn't like or that they took personally or that there wasn't PC enough or what, what or what have you. So I don't think that we wrote the rules. I think that I think that we certainly influenced a conversation that then got echoed in the mainstream media. I mean meaning by that I mean, you know, traditional media. That 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 the traditional media started to cover issues that were very similar to the ones that we talked about or exactly the same. And, and and did so in a way that that it almost feels like it's totally normal for them to do that now. I think that we contributed to what I now call outrage culture, but outrage culture has no sense of humor. We had a hell of a sense of humor, <laughs> so that's why I feel like it 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 um it splits off. Do you feel like the internet has kind of like lost its sense of humor, or that that world of it, like the the lady blogging world? I can't speak about lady blogging world because I don't read lady blogs. I mean, like literally, like I don't look at them the same way that I used to. So I feel like I I, I can't even talk about like what well, how, how gonna... they're different. But no, but it isn't about lady blogging. It's about it's about anything that has to do with politics. The fact that people who I know who are incredibly intelligent and have interesting things to say can't work out arguments or their thoughts, aren't given the room to do that because someone will take offense is depressing to me. But I think what Emma is probably having to put up with is far worse than anything I had to put up with. And I was really fucking annoyed a lot of the time at our, at our readership for, for being what I felt were you know overly fragile, overly PC about stuff. I think that she has a much harder job than I do because she has not only the people who grew up with the site and their expectations of what it should be or they think it should be and what it was, and might be grumpy about the ways in which it's changed, but the, she also just has like a bigger. She has a there's like a bigger crowd with louder megaphones who are telling her and her staffers that they suck um, than than there were with us. So, I here's the other thing. Here's the other thing that's actually quite fascinating. Um, 
you know, there's been a lot of discussion over the past couple of years about the abuse that women suffer on the internet for, for having an opinion. <laughs> you know, that 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 they get very gendered um, and racialized um, slurs directed at them and threats um, that men don't get. That was not happening to us when I was running Jezebel. Huh. It happened later. Certainly once in a while we would get an email or two or someone like a troll would pop in the comments and say something, but then he would get just get banned. You know, there were a couple of years ago that that Gawker Media came under fire by the Jezebel staff for not dealing with the fact that there were people going into the comments and posting right, gifts of, of, of rape or, or of what looked to be sexual assault. That never happened to us. So Why I really, do you think that changed? I don't know. Conversations about gender politics became mainstreamed and therefore very threatening to men who don't want to have conversations about, about gender politics and some women, um, but also just that you can hear from more people than you ever could because of the existence of social media. Right. The other thing that changed was that you sort of willingly left being this, that sort of top spot at that site. Like that site was you and you were that site for mm-hmm. a while there. Mm-hmm. Was it hard to like extricate yourself from that like when when Anna Holmes is Jezebel and Jezebel is Anna Holmes yeah. has it been hard to just become like Anna Holmes person to be honest with you it's only hard when people want to talk to me about it <laughs> and Sorry. I'm not complaining no 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 but but it was hard for me to extricate myself from it in the beginning because I felt very attached to it you know and I felt very proprietary about it and then I agreed to do a, a book for them that was based on the site. And so that almost kept me in that orbit a little bit more. Even though I wasn't running the site and I wasn't even reading it, right, I was working on this book, it. It, it was it was still a brand that was attached to me. But you know, at, at the time that I had said yes to doing the book, I felt like, well, if they're gonna do a book, then I should be the one to do it, right? <laughs> um, like I didn't want anyone else to do it. But but, but by, you know, the, by the time the book came out, although I was very happy with the result, and you know, a lot of people worked very hard on that book, I was over it. It wasn't that I was over the book. I was over being attached to that brand. Like yeah. it was the book came out in 2013. So it's 3 years after I had left. It felt like I was like swimming backwards a little bit. So, but once that was over, like once the the book had come out and the publicity had been had been done, I really did feel like I was released in some way. I'm I'm more interested in talking about it because of the effect that, you know, that that site had on on other media and because of the ways in which the people who worked there have moved on. I don't want it to be like I'm reliving glory days because on the one hand it was an extremely challenging, very, very, very rewarding job that I was maybe one of the best things that ever happened to me. On the other hand, I don't want to be talking about it in five years. What do you want to be doing in five years? Oh, I don't know. I think that like the writing thing is like a fear. There's a fear associated with it that I have to work through. I've had people say, why don't you write a book? And they're like, oh, wait, you've already written two books. I'm like, well, no, 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 no. But I, I published two books, but I didn't write them. The first one was a was a, was a a big research project that I wrote part of, but that was also mostly made up of other people's material. It was an anthology or kind of like a cultural history. And the second book, the Jezebel book, was something I oversaw. I, you know, edited it. I chose all of the the art for it and had very strong opinions about that and, and edited the copy of the writers who wrote those many thousands of entries but it didn't it wasn't my book and I would never call it my book because that would be dishonest it was a collaborative effort so when I've been asked why don't you write a book or why don't you write another book 
I usually respond, well, first of all, to write a book is a, is a, is a enormous commitment. And I would have to really, 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 really be interested in, in a topic in order to commit myself to that. Because the two books that I did already were crazy and took a lot out of me. And those weren't even like my own writing. Also, um, I'm not sure that I have anything to say at that length. You know, so in five years, maybe I will have gotten over myself enough <laughs> and, be- and, and believe that I have something worth saying in book form. But maybe I'll keep waiting until I do. And maybe I never will. I heard once this editor is like a great editor told a writer uh you just got to get over yourself yeah. <laughs> and do it listen max you know it's so much easier for to give advice to other people than than to take it you know it's so much easier i'm actually there are times when i can't believe that i'm a that i work in media because i was when i was i remember when i was 15 i was like i think i want to be a writer i think i want to work in magazines and there are times when i can't you know i look back and that was you know 30 not 30 years ago but like 25 years ago that i can't believe that i made that happen but it's also possible that maybe I, w- I want to try something else. I mean, I wish I was independently wealthy because then I could do whatever I wanted, right? I'd be like, I'm going to go travel for a year. Or I've decided to become a veterinarian. Or, you know, like. <laughs> My advice is become independently wealthy. Can you tell me how to do that? <laughs> no, I really can't. Sorry. Create an app <laughs> and hope for the best. I do hope you take your, your own advice. I'll, I'll try. Write a book. Maybe. Write what we'll you see. want to write. We'll see. Get over yourself. I know. I should. Anna, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Max. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lambert and Evan Ratliff. Evan Ratliff is the father of Zaley Ratliff. Hi, Zaley. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Molly Bain. Thanks to all of them, and thanks so much to Anna Holmes for taking the time. That was a real pleasure. We'll see you next week. When you- Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.